Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. One of the great, maybe the greatest progressive radio voices of our time is Tom Hartman. Somehow, in addition to the three-hour daily live broadcast of the Tom Hartman Show on commercial, Pacifica, and satellite radio and TV stations, Tom has written around 30 books. And today for Spirit in Action, we'll be talking to Tom about his latest, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote, and How to Get It Back. In this slim 150-page book, you get incredible volumes of knowledge and an excellent look at the historical, current, technical, and philosophical factors that distort and undermine the possibilities for democratic voting in this nation. I do want to get Tom Hartman on the phone, but first I want to set the mood with a song by Emma's Revolution, a song called Vote. It's set back in George W. Bush's tenure in the White House, Vote by Emma's Revolution, and then on to Tom Hartman. If they can count 424 billion for war, why can't they count our votes? And if they can count thousands of bombs and still be buying more, why can't they count
Tom. I'm really happy to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I have no idea how you have the voice to do another hour-long interview, considering the three hours I think you already spent on the radio. How do you do it? Do you have voice lessons or something? No. No, I guess I'll just talk well. <laughs> well, your book on the hidden history of the war and voting is awesome. I think in 150 pages, you cover so much history, so much particular examples, so much reasoning, so many philosophical ideas that people could hardly do better than to sit down and read this book. The hidden history series, you've got, I think, four of them. There's a Supreme Court, guns. Didn't you do one on monopolies as well, and then war and voting? That one. That one's coming out uh, this fall. It was guns, Supreme Court, uh, the monopoly one will be out this fall. Well, this one on voting is completely awesome. And I really, again, don't understand. You spend three hours a day on the radio already, radio and television. How do you have time to read books? Do you sleep? Oh, yeah, I do, actually. Not... You know, I, I sleep typically seven hours a night. But, uh, you know, basically my, my day, I you know, we get up at 5 and from 5.30 until 9 o'clock. I'm doing show prep. I'm on the air from 9 till noon. I come home, have lunch, and then I write until 6 o'clock at night. And then we watch uh, Rachel Maddow on TV and then we go to bed. That's my day, Monday through Friday. And it works. It works for me. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I guess it's like a 10 or 11 hour day, but, you know, it doesn't seem like work to me. I'm not laying bricks. I take it that you also must read extensively because the history that you cover in the hidden history of the war and voting is extensive, too. I don't think you get that. I I forget exactly how many books, maybe 10 of the 20 some books that I've seen about you concern heavily history. Are you an extensive reader in addition to watching Rachel Maddow? I am. Yeah. My dad wanted to be a history professor. He dropped out of college when mom got pregnant with me, but ended up going to work at a tool and die shop. But his goal had been he was going to college on the GI Bill to, to get a PhD and be a professor of history. And he had 20,000 books in his basement, and probably a third of them were history books. So I've been up to my eyeballs in history my whole entire life. I love the topic or the field or whatever you call it. It's well reflected in the book. When you start with the origins of the Constitution, is this the kind of thing that you learned for writing this book, or did you already know this, the whole uh, three-fifths compromise, all of that history? I've been familiar with that for quite some time, back 15 or so years ago. I read, we sold a business and retired to Vermont, and, and the house that we bought had a 10-volume set of the complete in fact, it was the first time I was ever compiled in 1909, complete uh, writings of Thomas Jefferson. And I read that thing cover to cover over about a year and a half period. And then I wrote a book called What Would Jefferson Do About That? So I've been pretty well immersed in that era for a long time. Well, would you explain a little bit for our listeners about the three-fifths compromise and how that affects what we're experiencing today in terms of voting in the United States, how it skews things with its racist history? Sure. When they were putting the Constitution together, the slave states, in one case, there were actually more enslaved people who had been brought from Africa than there were white people from Europe. In most of the states, it was a very, very substantial number of people who were held in slavery. So when they were deciding how many members of the House of Representatives each state would have, it was based on population. And 
for every certain number of people, every certain number of thousands of people, you get one additional representative. And so the people from the slave states, this is in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia in the Constitutional Convention, particularly Georgia and South Carolina, these were the two states that were really outspoken about this. They demanded that all their slaves be counted because they asserted they were human beings. And therefore, even though, you know, for example, women were counted, even though they couldn't vote, so they said, you know, slaves should be counted even though they can't vote. And the people from the North said, no way, Charlie, you know, that's not going to happen because, you know, even a, a family of enslaved people, a husband and wife, one of them will never have an opportunity to vote. So this is just, you know, we're not going to go along with this. That conflict nearly blew up the Constitutional Convention, and it would have led to the United States never happening. So the compromise that was worked out by the Virginians, by mostly Madison and a few of his friends, George Mason in particular, John Jay, was that they would count three-fifths of the slaves in the South toward the number of members of the House of Representatives, even though they couldn't vote. So it wasn't that you know, an enslaved person was three-fifths of a person. They were still zero of a person. They had no legal rights. But three-fifths of them were counted toward representation in the House. And this, you know, right up until the Civil War, skewed the Electoral College, because each state has a number of electors equal to its representatives in Washington. So if the state has two senators and one member of the House, they have three electoral votes. If they have two senators and five members of the House, they have seven electoral votes. So the states in the South that had large slave populations had a few additional electors because they had a few additional members of the House. And that's why I think of the first, uh, almost the first dozen presidents whose names wasn't Adams, uh, all of them were slaveholders from the South. That is amazing in terms of how it skewed things. But then, of course, we had the 14th Amendment, and no longer, theoretically at least, are African Americans deprived of voting. Why is it true, even today, that what happened back then, the way that the Electoral College was set up, skews things away from the national vote? Well, when the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed after the Civil War to uh, specifically ban slavery, uh, assure everybody had equal access to the court system and equal protection under the law, and that uh, men could not be prevented from voting based on their on the color of their skin. You know, when that happened, uh, you know, everybody had these great egalitarian hopes and, uh, in fact, the first couple of years after the Civil War, we actually had large numbers of African Americans elected to the state legislatures and, and to the constitutional conventions in the southern states because they had to rewrite the constitutions to excise slavery. And it wasn't until the failure of that reconstruction in the, in the mid-1870s that that collapsed. And then we got Jim Crow, where black people were no longer enslaved in the classic sense, but they were functionally enslaved via debt peonage, basically by becoming sharecroppers and, and, and things like that. But, but they were ex- specifically excluded from voting. I mean, there was a very, very aggressive move to prevent people of color, particularly African Americans, from voting in the South from the 1770s, 1870s, right up through 1965, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And so during that entire period of time, you had millions and millions of people 
in the South who were not allowed to vote through a whole variety of little tricks from poll taxes to literacy tests to, to just outright intimidation, you know, the Klan and whatnot. They weren't allowed to vote, but nonetheless, they were counted uh, no longer three-fifths of them were counted. Now 100% of them were counted. And so during that 100-year period, roughly, from you know the end of the Civil War until, until the 1960s, we actually had even more of the vote was skewed toward the South. There was more of a, the Southern states actually had more influence because their white populations were calling tune the black population had nothing to say, but the entire population was being counted for the purposes of representation in the House. The Republican Party, which originated mid-1800s, came into power, took over from the Whigs, and so we essentially have a, a system that only works well for two parties. The Republicans had the ascendancy then, after the Civil War. That meant the Democrats were second in control, the former Democratic Republicans, they used to be called, right? That somehow got switched back after the failure of Reconstruction, and that led to further subversion that you already just talked about. When the Democrats were in power then, was that good for the people? Or uh, partly what I'm getting at is the Republican Party currently has been working to suppress votes, and that's why he wrote The Hidden History of the War and Voting, that you know, Tom Hartman, you're looking at the history and what's happening today. We can see a 40, maybe in 50 year tailing off of voting and the ability to even register to vote. So the Republicans at one point are in power. The Democrats get back, get the ascendancy. Was any of those particularly good for voting, for widespread voting? Not really. <laughs> you know, the, the Republican Party of Lincoln only lasted about 10 or 15 years. And that was the radical Republicans, Thaddeus Stevens, and that whole faction uh, within the Republican Party after the Civil War, you know, who wrote and passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and who were big fans of, of enfranchising former slaves. Certainly by 1800, that Republican Party had been largely voted out of office or just had vanished, and the Republican Party had become the party of the emerging oligarch class that was coming about as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution that was really starting to pick up steam in the 1880s. And the Democratic Party, since the Civil War, from the time of the Civil War through Reconstruction, uh, was the, the remnant of the party of the South. And so the Democratic Party was the party of the Dixiecrats and the and segregationists, you know, the George Wallace. This was right up until the 1960s. And the Republican Party was the party of the corporations and the wealthy people. Really, nobody was the party of uh, minorities uh, until 1965 when Lyndon Johnson fought for and got passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And uh, as he famously told Bill Moyers the night that he signed the Voting Rights Act, he said, I, I may have lost the South to the Democratic Party for a generation. Turns out he lost the South to the Republicans for at least three and arguably four generations. And so in when we went into the Gilded Age, the end of the 1800s, and uh, the Republican, the, the rich people ascendancy, shall we say, the Democrats definitely got control after 
the great or as of the Great Depression, and I don't think there's anything particularly great about it. But it used to be called the Republican Great Depression. <laughs> they changed. They they stopped calling it the Republican Great Depression in the 1950s or the 50s. Well, I noticed that you included, or I saw included in a list of uh, very bad presidents was Herbert Hoover, who, you know, he came into office less than a year before the Great Depression. Then a ton of bricks landed, and he probably was with some of the policies. (laughs) But because I'm Quaker, I tend to think fondly of him for much of his humanitarian work that he did. He was not a terrible person, you know. FDR brought him into his, uh, I don't know if he was in the cabinet, but he certainly was uh, in, you know, he worked with FDR in rebuilding the United States. He kind of redeemed himself. And so part of my question is, the Democrats took control. When did we actually peak in terms of the number of people actually being allowed to register to vote and being able to vote? I mean, those might be two different peaks. Yeah, it's a very good question, Mark, and I don't know the answer, either on an absolute numbers basis or on a per capita basis. I don't know. I, I, I'm guessing on an absolute numbers basis, it would just probably be the last, you know, because every year you, the population of the United States grows by another, you know, few million people. And, and so you get another couple hundred thousand voters. So, but, but a, a really interesting analysis would be, you know, per capita. But I've never seen that. I, I'm, it's probably out there someplace. But I haven't run it. Folks, we're talking to Tom Hartman. In addition to having written something like 30 books, the one we're talking about today is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote, and How to Get It Back. And part of my question about that, Tom, was that women got the vote in the 1920s. And so finally, half the population is now eligible to register to vote. I don't know if they came in in droves or not. As you said, in 1965, when LBJ helped get past voting rights and so people of color could actually have voting ability, could actually get out there and vote, I assume those are two jumps in the numbers of people voting as a percentage of the population. Does that seem accurate to you as well? I would assume so, yeah. Are there any other major jumps in terms of people actually being allowed to vote? Not to the best of my knowledge. I mean, those those were seminal more. There was probably one after the Civil War in terms of uh, African Americans in the South who registered to vote and voted in the elections of the late 1860s and the, and the first four or five years of the 1870s. But by and large, they had, by the 1880s, they had all been pushed off the voting rolls and not allowed back until the 1960s. And folks who are listening, I'm trying to put in the broad context of history what's happening in terms of voting. We've got an anomaly happening the past 30 years. I call it an anomaly. It certainly doesn't match what happened the 30 years before that. So I guess maybe it's useful, and maybe you can state your own objective here, Tom, the big picture about voting is the objective that we would wish that as many people could vote as possible. Well, that's the, that's the idea of a democracy, of a representative republic. Our form of government is a constitutionally limited representative democratic republic. And so, you know, you're a republic that uses majority rule democracy to determine who our representatives are who are going to make decisions on behalf of us. So that's the theory of democracy. Now, there are different forms. I mean, in ancient Athens, what they had was 
uh, instead of electing representatives, everybody who is a citizen, their name went into a pot, and every year they would pull a thousand names out of that pot, and those people, you know, it's on jury duty, and those people were the, were the legislature for that year. Actually, I think it was fewer than a thousand, it might have been 600 or 300 even, or whatever it was. And in fact, they had a word for the people who did not show up when their name was called for this uh, you know, year's legislative duty. They were called idiotas, which is where we get the word idiot from. Oh, really? I didn't know that one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one form of democracy. You mentioned in the book that there's compulsory voting, for instance, in Australia, and that some 91% of the people vote. I think it's higher than that, actually. It's a progressive fine. It's like $25 the first year that you don't vote, and then the second year, I think it goes up to 100 and it goes up from there. So there's all different ways of doing voting as well. In this country, originally, uh, far less than 50% of the people could actually vote. Uh, it was actually, at one point, wasn't it tied to ownership of property? I mean, that's certainly what people wanted, or maybe effectively that's what was enforced because a poor laborer couldn't get out to vote? I don't know. It depended on the state. And there were people at the Constitutional Convention who argued that there should be uh, property rights should be, uh, John Adams argued for this, that only people who own land should be able to vote because so much of what government was deciding was going to be the disposition of property. So people who were property owners, that was adopted by a few states, and I don't have a list off the top of my head or, or handy, and it's not in the book. That was adopted by a few states after the founding of the Republic, but in the 1820s, in 1828, when uh, Andrew Jackson was elected, he was elected on a very, very populist platform and in the Second National Bank and, and uh, expanding the voting franchise. And he worked really hard to get a federal law that said that that would have banned the uh, property requirements to vote for white men. He never got that law passed, but his rhetoric was such that all the states that had those laws by the 18, early 1830s had done away with them. So that didn't last very long, and it, and it never, never really had that much impact because it was only a few states that did it. And it was also true that a number of states, particularly after Reconstruction failed, put in things like poll tax and literacy tests. Literacy tests is kind of an interesting thing. Of course, during slavery, African Americans were not allowed to learn to read in many cases. I mean, it was prohibited. You could be punished if you taught a slave to read. So literacy obviously was an issue there, but I imagine there were a lot of white people who couldn't read as well at that point. So didn't literacy tests work against those folks as well? No, because the literacy tests were only administered to black people. It was entirely up to the discretion of the local people who were running the local polling station. So, you know, they were pretty selective about who they were administering a literacy test to. As we all know, the right of women to vote, women's suffrage, was passed, I think it's 1920 exactly. So then women could vote. In the book, you make an interesting reference to the fact that still, by the current systems, by the rules that are enforced, that it discriminates against women for voting. It suppresses, to some degree, their voting rates. How does that happen? Well, that's the result of this new scheme that Republicans came up with in the early 2000s as it became more and more obvious to them that they were never again going to win an election as, as you know, the demographics of America were changing and, 
and people were figuring out that they were basically the party of wealth and corporate power as opposed to the party of you know the average working person. Uh, I mean, you know, they successfully pulled together a coalition of white racists and, and gun nuts and a small slice of the white Christian fundamentalists, but it still wasn't enough to win elections. And so they started putting into place these uh, very, very strict identification laws because they said that there was this massive problem with voter fraud where people were showing up at the polls and pretending that they were somebody else in order to vote or voting multiple times under different names. Interestingly, that just basically doesn't happen. In any given year, you know, the best guesses are somewhere between 20 and 30 people vote illegally, as it were. And, and, and in fact, the majority of those, and we know this because there was a huge investigation, a four-year investigation, which was funded by the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. And there have been several secretaries of state that have really tried to crack down on this, Chris Kobach in Kansas in particular, and Greg Abbott in, in Texas, where they just went nuts. You know, hey, let's find people who are voting who shouldn't be voting. What they found was that it was almost always either people who were green card holders, uh, legal permanent residents who thought that their green card allowed them to vote. And again, we're talking about fewer than 30 people a year in the entire United States. They were either green card holders or they were ex-felons in states where ex-felons lose their right to vote, which is only about a little less than half the states. It's mostly the former slave states. And uh, they just didn't know that they were no longer eligible to vote. So the number of people who actually double vote or vote knowing that they have no right to vote is pretty much non-existent. I mean, it's a, uh, in most states, it's two years in jail. In some states, it's as much as five years in jail for illegal voting. Uh, who's going to do that? You know, it's just crazy. Nobody's going to do that. But the Republicans succeeded in convincing people that this was a problem, or at least in asserting that it was a problem, sufficiently to pass legislation that your identification and your voter registration had to be absolutely identical. So we've got this weird situation now where, you know, if they want to challenge your vote and your ID says that your name is John Lewis Johnson and your driver's license says John L. Johnson, they can refuse to let you vote. But worse than that, if you're a woman and you have gotten married and changed your last name in order to vote under these super strict restrictions, you now have to bring in your original birth certificate, you have to bring in your marriage certificate, you have to bring in your certificate of name change with the Secretary of State, and then all of this stuff has to absolutely conform to your driver's license or your passport or whatever form of ID you're using. That actually knocks a lot of women off the voting rolls in these states that have these, exclusively the Republican-controlled states, that have these really, really, really rigorous voter ID laws. Interestingly, that can sometimes work in your favor as well, the name change thing. I've been a war tax resistor since 1982, and when my wife and I got married in 1994, we created a new last name. So my name is Mark Judkins Helpsmeet, and the government, when sending something to the company, which I co-owned with two other people, they sent it in the wrong name. They got my name wrong. And so we had to send it back, said, no, we can't honor this because you didn't ask it for the right person. So it, it can sometimes work in our favor. Okay. 
<laughs> Does it ever work against Republicans? Do they have their laws undercut them that we know of? No, they, not to the best of my knowledge. They're still very successful at disenfranchising voters. Um, using this rubric of, of people double voting and then saying, well, if somebody's going to fraudulently vote, they have to first be on the voting rolls. And so we have to be sure to clean the rolls every year. And so in the two years before the 2016 election, for example, uh, Scott Walker in Wisconsin threw several hundred thousand people off the voting rolls. Rick Scott Snyder in Michigan threw several hundred thousand people off the voting rolls, asserting that these were people who had died or moved out of state. Um, in Ohio, John Kasich threw several hundred thousand people off the, roll, off the voting rolls. Each one of those states, uh, Donald Trump won by fewer than 20,000 votes, but uh, they were only able to get that close by doing that. In, in Georgia, in the four years before the election in 2018, where Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State, ran against Stacey Abrams, he won by 56,000 votes, but he had thrown a million people, 10% of the Georgia voting population, off the voting rolls in the four years before the election. And in addition to that, she, uh, on a group that was dedicated to getting African-American voters registered, had uh, obtained the registrations of between 50 and 55,000 African-Americans. They submitted them to the Secretary of State's office half a year before the election, and Brian Kemp said that he had a sudden manpower shortage and he wouldn't be able to process those votes until after the election. So those people were not allowed to vote. So, you know, this is, this is still working quite well for the Republican Party. Thank you very much. And that's Tom Hartman we're speaking with today. The War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back is his most recent book. And it's part of, I think, 31 books that I counted that you've written. We have him here today on Spirit in Action, which is, of course, a Northern Spirit Radio production. Our website, northernspiritradio.org, with 14 and a half years of guests working hard to improve the world to heal the world. And Tom Hartman is that guest that we have here today. On our site, you can listen to all of those programs. There's RSS feed you can subscribe to. And we love it when you post comments and rate our programs. Please do that when you visit. There's also a donate button. That's how we fund this work exclusively, not by corporations, not by government, but by you, the listener. Please support us. And also, I want to encourage you to listen to Tom's programs everywhere besides his three-hour program that he does on radio stations you can listen via tv as well and you should read some of those 31 books tom is not only a wonderful speaker and commentator but he even has a phd in homeopathy and a master's degree in herbal medicine which i think for when we're talking about world health are also significant and amongst other things tom you spoke at the 2011 fighting bob fest here in wisconsin so i i'm honored that you visited wisconsin and you gave a wonderful speech there in the mode of fighting bob what was your experience of fighting bob fest uh, I think I've spoken there at least twice over the years. and It's a great annual get-together, and Bob LaFollette is you know, one of the great champions of the rights of labor and average working people. 
And he also led to the Progressive Party in particular, led to innovations in voting, recall measures and such, which we hadn't had before. There was a number of ways in which he helped increase democracy in our country. And I think you're trying to do that by advocating for the war on voting. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know that. Yeah. I want to address one specific thing. You talked about Stacey Abrams and the attempt to suppress the vote there. The election where I am very aware where that removing people from the voter rolls completely determined the entire election nationally was in 2000. And by the way, one of my jobs along the way, and I know you've started a number of companies, you do work in many different ways, but I started a company when I moved here to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, called Infinity Software Solutions. And in 2000, Jeb Bush had hired a company called Infinity Software Development. I ran into them for names of companies issues a few years later and the head of that company got a non-compete contract from Jeb Bush promising that his brother George W Bush would win the election so they did that thing of let's move people off of the rolls ending up you know you turn away 30,000 people in heavily black areas that determined which way that state went which determined which way the nation went in 2000 even though a recall as you point out in the book would have gone in favor not of George W Bush anyway so <laughs> we all have our connections to the way that this voter suppression works and But that's just one way in which currently, and I, by currently I mean the last 30 years certainly, the Republicans have tried to tilt the vote. One of them is gerrymandering, and that in Wisconsin has been determinative. You were here in 2011, that's right after Scott Walker's coup, essentially. So tell us how gerrymandering works, what its history is in the nation, and why it's so determinative for this nation right now. Well, gerrymandering, very simply put, is where elected officials choose their voters rather than voters choose their elected officials. And this has been something that both parties have done since the beginning of the Republic. In fact, it's named after Eldridge Jerry, who was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention and later was the governor of Massachusetts in the early 1800s. He was the one who first gerrymandered a state and did it in Massachusetts. And basically, it's, you know, if you control the state and you want to configure it so that and you pretty much know who, who votes, how and where, then you draw voting areas that will establish control for your party. So, for example, in the 2016 election, Pennsylvania, as I recall, these numbers may not be precise, but it's in this ballpark. Pennsylvania, well, in North Carolina, also the same thing, sent as I recall, 13 Republicans and five Democrats to the U.S. House of Representatives, but the vote was about 50-50. And, you know, similar numbers in North Carolina, smaller numbers but similar. And that's the consequence of gerrymandering. That's the consequence of being able to draw the congressional districts and choose your voters. It's very simple. And now there's a number of states that have pushed back against this. California led the charge a number of years ago. They, they uh, abolished the right of the state to, or they modified, they did it by legislation, not by the Constitution. But in fact, I think it might have been a citizen's initiative, a ballot measure, that said that instead of the legislature drawing the maps every every 10 years after the census, 
that instead there would be a nonpartisan commission that would draw the maps and they would do it based on very predictable mathematical formula and they would try to always have the, the voting districts be as close to polygonal as possible as opposed to these things that look like salamanders, you know. It is quite interesting. We see that certainly in Wisconsin currently. I think that statewide, in terms of the votes for House of Representatives, the Republicans got somewhere close to 50% of the votes, but they got more than two-thirds of the seats. And all you have to do is draw your districts. So all of the Democrats, basically, as many as you can get, are in a few districts, and the Democrats are going to win those. And the other ones, you make them 55% Republican, and 45% Democrats, and that's a safe enough margin, and we get a terribly misleading. It's not a representative democracy in any case. That's correct. That's a good description of it. One of the things that people, you talk about in the book, and again, folks, the book is The War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is provisional votes. And people think that, that for some reason they're disputed when they go in to vote. But somehow, when they put in a provisional vote, they think this might get counted. How significant is the problem that those actually never get counted? What is the issue there? Provisional ballots were the grand invention of the Republican Party in 2002. The Help America Vote Act, which handed the states $5.5 billion to buy voting machines, also invented this thing called the provisional ballot. And the sales pitch was nobody should be turned away from the vote. Everybody should be able to vote if they show up to a polling place, even if they might not actually be registered to vote or be a legal voter, they should at least have a chance to register their opinion, you know, which kind of sounds good, but not quite. But the way it works is if you show up at a polling place and your name is not on the voter rolls because Scott Walker kicked you off because you happen to live in Milwaukee or in Madison. The person working the poll will say to you, well, I don't see your name on the list here, so I'm going to give you a provisional ballot. It's just like a regular ballot. You know, they'll have some slightly different identification or it goes in a different envelope. But uh, they'll give you a provisional ballot, and you know you take it over to the table or the booth or whatever, and they fill it out and mark it. You think you vote it. You hand it back to them. And what they typically don't tell you is that provisional ballots are only counted when an election is contested, like the old man Coleman Al Franken election in the next state over in Minnesota. And uh, that was, they, they hadn't literally even opened the provisional ballot until the election was contested. And then they only count the provisional ballots where people who realized that a provisional ballot never gets counted. I had shown up at the Secretary of State's office within three or four days after the election and presented their driver's license and birth certificate and proof of residence and all the stuff necessary to register to vote. And if they had been registered in the past, proof that they had been registered in the past to show that they, Scott Walker had incorrectly removed them from the voting rolls. So, you know, like after the election in Ohio in 2004, which George W. Bush won by about 160,000 votes, there were 186,000 provisional ballots that literally had never been opened to this day because it wasn't contested. John Edwards was fighting with Kerry. He wanted him to contest that election and forced them back in the provisional ballots, but Kerry didn't, didn't think that they would win and didn't want to be seen as a, split, as a spoiler or a poor loser, and so he just gave up, gave in. 
but it's worked out as a really good scam because it's kind of a pressure relief valve. You know, people go to vote and they don't, you know, if they were just sent away, then they would be muttering under their breath about Scott Walker kicking off the voting rolls again. But because they vote and they think their vote is probably going to be counted, they're mollified. And then they walk outside and, and there's an exit pollster out there saying, who'd you vote for? And they say, oh, I voted for Hillary Clinton, you know, or whatever. And they, the pollster marks that down. And this is why we're seeing in Republican-controlled states, state after state, election after election, since the 2004 election in a big way, we're seeing it's called redshift. There's no parallel blue shift. This doesn't pretty much happen in the blue states. But in the red states, you'll find where the exit polls show that the Democrat actually won the election. For example, the exit polls in 2016 showed that Hillary Clinton won Florida, South Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, all those states that she won them, according to the exit polls. But the actual tallies showed that Donald Trump won those states. So what accounts for that difference? The difference is accounted for by people walking out of the polling place thinking that they voted not realizing their vote will never be counted because they were given a provisional ballot and informing the exit pollsters of how they voted. The analysis that you go into in the book, Tom, if people read The War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is amazingly clear about how this provisional votes and specifically the way that the tool that they're using to slice who gets to vote, who doesn't, it's not as blatant as back in, you know, your skin's black, so therefore you have to do a literacy test. But it is really amazingly clear how they're aiming it at certain populations to make sure that their votes don't get counted. And so the provisional votes is one of that. But the other ways that they can limit your vote from being counted are really significant too. You talked about the redshift in the book, and you didn't say exactly how that redshift happened because we can't know for sure, right? What we know is that typically exit polls are extremely accurate. Historically, in the United States, internationally, everywhere they're accurate, but all of a sudden, at a certain point, this redshift happened that either people are too ashamed to say that they voted for a Republican when they came out, or maybe they, so they therefore they lied and said they voted for a Democrat. I don't know what what's happening. But there's this other thing that's happening, and that has to do with the voting machines and how ballots are counted. Uh, we had a terrible case here in Wisconsin. It was a vote with respect to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, a very a vile, actually, conservative on the state court was being challenged. The woman that was running against him appeared to have won. And then in one of the cities here, the woman said, oh, wait, no, I found 15,000 votes that I forgot to report. And that that was enough to switch the election. Yeah. So how much of that is happening? Can Is there any way to control that? That's a real problem. And broadly speaking, because we don't have a right to vote in the Constitution, when your vote gets messed with, it's, you know, it might technically be a crime, but it's never prosecuted. And this happened to Don Siegelman down in Alabama in 2002. You know, he, he went to bed having won the election, and then in the middle of the night, a Republican operative who was also the guy who was counting the vote in a particular county in Alabama discovered 15,015,000 votes that had not been counted now, just for governor, none of the, you know, he didn't discover any votes down ticket. So, and then 
woke up the next morning and he had lost, and uh, which led to a rather substantial legal battle. But, you know, that, yeah, that, that happens, uh, sadly, that happens a lot. I was real interested in your comment about the Al Franken contest, because I remember specifically, you know, he lost but asked for a recount. And that's the kind of situation when provisional votes get counted because he demanded a recount. I was amazed that the shift of a few thousand votes, or it was actually maybe more like nine or 10,000 votes, that tilted that election in Al Franken's direction, whereas the original numbers had been reported for his adversary. So do we see that happening often enough, or is it only normally these provisional votes get counted when you said it's contested? Is that like in the case for recount or is there other situations no it's pretty much it's pretty much requires a recount to count provisional ballots and uh, we really have no idea how much election fraud is going on this is not voter fraud which is what the Republicans feel about but election fraud where the elections are are not run on you know up and up we have no idea how much there is because no states routinely audit their elections which is something that, by the way, H.R. 1 would build into our elections. The legislation that passed the House, it was the first piece of legislation Nancy Pelosi's House passed, you know, in this legislative session. It's sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk. It will not get acted on. But it would mandate that all elections have kind of a random 1, 2, 3 percent of the vote would be audited to make sure that everything's on the up and up. That just doesn't happen in this country. This might be a good moment to detour slightly from what is actually written in the book, and that is to talk about the values that motivate our elections and how we think the government should run. For me, I, I've had a number of dialogues. It's really important to me to have dialogues, certainly across partisan and ethnic and cultural and everything differences. And so I've had to look at myself and say, where where do my values start? And I think the fundamental for me is truth. If you're not making sure something's true, then you can't say whether it should, how it should be implemented with respect to any of your other values. What do you think for Tom Hartman is the fundamental value that leads you to be such a strong and wonderful progressive voice? What are the values that, if you can give them in any kind of priority, drive your dedication to this work? I believe in democracy. I believe that when the largest number of people have a say in how a government is run, that you'll get the best outcome, which is which was a belief that was held by about half of the people who founded this country and, and who framed the Constitution, and a little more than half. And I think that, you know, history and biology prove that out. You see this across the animal kingdom. And so, you know, I, I want what's best for people and for all life on this planet, and I think that we get that optimally, we're most likely to get that when the largest number of people participate. I had a friend in high school, Mike by name, who three quarters tongue in cheek, but maybe one quarter truthfully said, the best form of government is a fascism as long as I'm the fascist in charge. Sure. I, certainly, I have a feeling that this country would be run better if Tom Hartman was in charge or if Mark Helpsmeet was in charge, because I happen to think that our values are better for the world than those of Donald Trump. 
perhaps, or, you know, I, I, this isn't a political speech about which party, but it is a question of whether democracy is obviously the best. So do you have any idea what values you have that make democracy the best? There's certainly enough history in this country, and you talk about some of it in the war on voting, how the mass vote is manipulated through the rich people controlling the media, for instance. Yeah. George W. Bush actually made a joke once that went pretty viral where he said the dictator, it would be a whole lot better if this country was run as a dictatorship just surrounded by the dictator. But I think that, you know, we have a we have a long history in this country of having democratic values, of believing in uh, the things that have become the institutions of this of this country. I think it's very sad that, you know, the Reagan administration dialed back radically on teaching of civics in our schools. We've got a lot of people who literally can't tell you what the three branches of government are now, about a third of Americans. I think that's a tragedy. I think we need to return to educating people about democracy and about what a republic is and how they work and what are the essential parts of it. Because, as I said, I, I really think that it's a form of government and government that is consistent with our biology and with our history. I think you and I both agree on just the wide range of issues. And when I've listened to your radio program, I've been very impressed at your astute, not only grasp of the issues, but your ability to render them. Maybe you have an answer for this one then. Why do the rural states, you know, the small states that end up determining the electoral college, why do they go so heavily Republican, which, you know, gives control in the Senate and Electoral College to the Republicans? Why the rural people? Well, this is a lesson that I keep hoping that somebody in the Democratic Party is going to figure out. If you want to seize control of a state by essentially indoctrinating the people of that state in your ideology, it's very expensive to do that in a large state like California. But if you want to simply, you know, buy the largest newspaper in the state, buy two or three radio stations in the state, and put your people in charge of those things, it's pretty easy to do in a state like Wyoming. What the Republicans have been doing since the 1960s is, uh, or really since the 1970s, Lewis Powell kicked this off in 1971 when he wrote a memo laying out exactly how to go about doing this, is they have built the political and media infrastructure in these low-cost, low-population states so that they have control of, you know, Oklahoma and Wyoming and Missouri, et cetera. It's worked out quite well for them. You can't find progressive talk radio in most of these states. The TV stations are owned by Sinclair, and they do right-wing editorials every night. The newspapers are controlled by conservatives. You can't even hear a progressive message in many of these states. And that's why they are consistently going Republican. There's just no alternative. You know, it wouldn't be appropriate if we didn't at least get people to go to the book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. You talk about solutions. It's the last chapter where you address that very specifically. And I'm wondering, you know, I mean, one of the things that I thought, like, wow, yeah, if D.C. got the vote, it's almost dependably a Democrat vote right now, Puerto Rico and if you split up California into six states, I think there's proposals out there to do that. All of a sudden, the Senate changes radically. That's just one of the solutions you talk about that. One that I was just 
captivated by was there's a number of states who've passed the law, the resolution to say that the national public vote will get all of their electoral votes. Could you talk about that and how close we are to actually having some kind of solution to the electoral college there? Yeah, it takes, uh, as I recall, I believe it's 272 electoral votes to win. I'd have to go back and look. I'm sorry, I don't. I think it's 270. But yeah, I, something like that. Yeah, okay, in that neighborhood anyway. So uh, what these states have said, it, you know, because you know George W. Bush lost to Al Gore by a half million votes and Donald Trump lost to Hillary Clinton by three million votes, uh, what these states have said is that once enough states have signed this compact, that it equals more than 270 votes, then we will start instructing our electors in the Electoral College, we will start instructing them to vote for whichever candidate won the national vote. And they're up to 230-something like that. It's, it's basically all the blue states have signed on to this. And uh, now they're starting to, you're seeing, you know, we're hoping Virginia will do it, for example. You know, they just got taken over by Democrats. So we're not there yet, but you can learn all about it over at fairvote.org. That's one of many ways that we could solve what is a really unfortunate crisis in our vote. A right to vote, you've already mentioned that, and I'd certainly go in the favor of that. Universal registration, which with the computers these days, why don't we just do it? I don't know. There's so many solutions, and I'm glad you're out there advocating. You're registered for the draft as soon as you turn 18. Why aren't you registered to vote? (laughs) Right. It's because someone has a vested interest in each direction, I think, is what it comes down to. Exactly. You know, there's so much wonderful history and analysis and visioning that's in the book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back by Tom Hartman. Don't stop just with that. Read some of the other 30 or so books that he's written. Listen to his radio program daily and just avail yourself of the conveyed wisdom that he has for us. And Tom, I'm so thankful that you are the number one progressive voice on radio, and I'm so thankful you're doing that and that you joined me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure and an honor. I appreciate you having me on. And folks, please look for the links to it, TomHartman.com. Hartman has two N's, and Tom has a T-H at the beginning. The link's on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Thank you to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 